This is KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Coming up, Subversity with Dan Zhang. The opinions on the show are not necessarily those of the regents of the University of California, nor the management of KUCI. Uh, with us today, again, to talk about Yemen developments, Yemen uh, developments from uh, the revolt in Yemen, is uh, William Picard of the Yemen Peace, uh, Peace Project. Uh, welcome to the show. Thanks. Good to be back. Uh, this is Dan Zhang with Subversity here on KUCI. Uh, you were here on uh, early in early February, and at that time you weren't sure actually how would it would develop. Huh? Yeah, it was uh, it was very hard to see uh, to, to tell which way things were going to go um, at the beginning of this uh, protest movement in Yemen, uh, and things have been moving very quickly in recent days and recent weeks. Uh, so y- you said it was hard to uh, know at that time what changed. Well, uh, the movement, which started off uh, slowly, at least uh, it, it appeared slow uh, from outside Yemen, um, really picked up a lot of steam uh, after the regime started cracking down on protesters in several of Yemen's cities. Um, and uh, once the, the youth movement uh, started responding uh, to this, to the crackdowns by escalating their calls for, for the regime to, to go... Uh, a lot of the mainstream opposition actors fell in behind the the youth um, and strengthened the movement and, and sort of helped it survive to this point. Uh, but a lot of things have happened um, since we were here in the beginning of February, for sure. Um, at that point, at w- when we were last here, uh, Yemen had seen some major protests, but it hadn't seen the kind of sustained occupation of public spaces that we were seeing in Egypt in their 18-day mm. revolution. Um, and, uh, in fact, uh, as, as my wife and colleague Dana Moss said last time she was here, things really took a, a, a turn in Yemen on the 11th of February after uh, Hosni Mubarak fell in Egypt. Um, there were spontaneous demonstrations on that day in support of the Egyptian revolution, which turned into, uh, protests against the Yemeni regime, um, and the government immediately cracked down on those, uh, and um, and that seemed to to really invigorate the protest movement in Yemen. Was that outside the university? Or, that or uh, other places. The main protests. It's actually it's it's interesting how the sort of domination of public spaces has played out here. On the 11th or the morning of the 12th of February, um, activists in Yemen came out into uh, Sanaa's. Tahrir Square, which obviously shares a name with the oh. site of the <laughs> the main protests in Cairo, um, and it would have been symbolic, uh, symbolically important for them to occupy that space, and clearly that was their goal, and the government understood that oh. and forced them out immediately. So that stands for freedom or uh, liberation, uh, liberation. Basi- yeah. basically okay. the meaning of Tahrir. So the regime understood also how important it was to keep the protests out of Tahrir, and uh, in response, on the morning of the twelfth. Um, Sanaa woke up to see that pro-government demonstrators had occupied Tahrir Square. These were uh, tribal people from outside the city, some residents of Sanaa who had been paid, uh, some of them bussed in, in in Mm. big army trucks by the government, by the ruling party, in fact, to occupy this public square. They were being fed and paid uh, by the state. to hold this space and to put on a show of pro-regime uh, rallies. So um, 
uh, it was really it was uh, the mo- most of most of February went by without the anti-regime demonstrators having a space of their own. From probably the 12th until around the 19th of February, you saw counter demonstrations and demonstrations on a daily basis, um, and the two sides would clash in the streets and then they'd be dispersed. But the anti-regime protesters, the pro-democracy protesters, weren't able to occupy uh, oh, space yeah. uh, or sustain their activities on, on a 24-hour basis um, in Sanaa. In other places, in Taiz, which is, in, uh, s- uh, which is south of, uh, of Sanaa, um, the pro-democracy demonstrators were able to occupy a public space pretty much immediately and mm. sustain their occupation 24 hours a day. Um, and that's why we were saying early on that Taiz would be the epicenter of this revolution throughout mm. the country. Um, and it wasn't until uh, the 20th of February that students and others in Sanaa, in the capital, were able to, to claim a space, as you said, outside of the University of Sanaa. And, um, and they named it, they, they obviously couldn't call their space Tahrir Square, because that had been taken by the government. But uh, the, the Yemeni... Um, uh, let's say that the literary tradition in Yemen has a, a great respect for plays on words, and uh-huh. so the students called this new space. Uh, they use another Arabic word, tahrir, which means change, and it obviously rhymes with tahrir. Yeah. So that it sort of it calls to mind the fact that uh, that they weren't in tahrir, but that they were change. They were calling for change. Uh, uh-huh. So it's sort of a symbolic name that they gave to their new space, and they've been there ever since. Um, they've uh, withstood several attacks by pro-regime uh, thugs, by actual soldiers and police forces, and they've managed to hold their position and, and, and expand from a couple of thousand students to now hundreds of thousands of students, tribesmen, mm. uh, professionals, lawyers, people of every walk of life. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of women have been there, too. Was um, that where the... the killings took place. That's right, yeah, the killings. Uh, on, on the 18th, um, so just, just over a week ago, uh, we had... Uh, of March. Of yeah. March. The 18th of March, we had 52 wow. demonstrators killed um, by pro-regime snipers. And um, Was that during the day or at night? It started right after, it was a Friday, and it started right after noon prayers. Uh, oh. Obviously, that's the, the most significant uh, communal prayer time for most Muslims. And uh, right after uh, the noon prayer, as people were rising, and this is really an amazing thing to see in all of these protest sites in each of the cities, people pray communally. So if yeah. you watch a video of it, you'll see hundreds of thousands of people in streets and side streets and public squares all praying together. It's really uh, a, a, a sight to behold. But just as the prayers were concluding, um, pro-regime elements outside of the protest zone had set up a wall, and they started a a fire using tires and tar and oil outside of this wall. The objective was originally to keep the protesters from expanding their protest site. Um, And this, you can see in the videos, this wall of black smoke uh, over the the whole area, and then shooting started from just outside. Um, there were snipers on rooftops um, shooting into the crowd of protesters. And these are videos posted on on YouTube, etc. By journalists, by uh, protesters with cell phones. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and um, and they've since been tweeted and posted on Facebook uh, yeah. around the world. 
Um, and witnesses, journalists and doctors who were treating the protesters at the site uh, this, on the 18th again, um, said that most of the injuries they were seeing, most of the gunshot wounds they were seeing were head wounds, chest mm. wounds. These were obviously, uh, the objective was yeah. to kill. Yeah. Um, and they did. They killed 52 people. Uh, in just a couple of hours. Uh, Do you know what... Um, we're talking with William Picard of the Yemen Peace Project here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Uh, do you know who, um, who, were the, the, who were the people killed? Is there a breakdown of... Well, uh, um, they, there, was, there seems to be a pretty wide swath because, as, as I said, at this point, there are a lot of students in the protest. There are also a lot of uh, tribesmen mm. um, and a lot of... Uh, Older, you know, non-student uh, residents of Sana'a and the surrounding areas, uh, professionals, unemployed people, um, about half of Yemenis are unemployed. So, mm. uh, so a lot of people from different backgrounds died. One of the interesting things, and this ties into what I just said about the city of Taiz being very important to this revolution, about half of the people killed in Sana'a on that day are actually from Taiz. So you can see not only have they, the people of that city, sustained their own massive demonstration, um, but they've also exported revolutionaries to other huh. cities. And, and How far away is other uh, two cities? From, from Taiz to Sana'a, I would say that's, what, a three- or four-hour drive? Mm. Um, mm. And um, travel's very difficult these days, obviously. The government is prohibiting a lot of travel, but uh, a lot of... A lot of university students who live in Sana'a are from Taiz, uh, and a lot of people who work there are from Taiz. Uh, it's a very highly educated city compared to the rest of Yemen. Mm. And so uh, if you look at any other school in the rest of Yemen, you'll find Taizi students and teachers there. Was uh, it mostly men that got killed? Mostly men. Uh, I'm, I can't tell you for sure. I have to look, up, look this up if there were any women killed. There have been a lot of women at the protests in Sana'a, but they are very well protected. And that's what all of my, the, the female activists that I talk to say is that they are, you know, they occupy a, a very special place in the, in the minds of all the other protesters. And so they're sort of, they're usually in one section. Um, a lot of the time they're with their families or with their children. Mm. Oh. Um, because if you're unemployed and you want to go protest, you have to bring your kids. What else oh, are you sure. going to do with them? Yeah. Um, so they're generally in a more uh, isolated, they're not isolated, but they're in a central part of the protest area, so they weren't on the, um, the frontier of the protest zone where the shooting was happening. Oh, I see. Oh. For the most part. Um, well, how, how does that protect them? Uh, well, so uh, They're not in the front lines. Yeah, they're not in the front lines, exactly. Mm -hmm. They're in sort of, they're closer to uh, where the, the, the residential tents are that have been set up, mm. um, and they're you know, it's typical for Yemeni society that, that women should be in, in one place and not be intermingled throughout the crowd with, with men. And uh, So do, do the women agree to that, you think? Well, um, I mean, that, that varies from woman to woman, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. But I, I've definitely heard this, this said by a few different female activists that when they go to, uh, to change square, as it's called, at the university, mm. they are treated with so with more respect. Some of them say, I feel safer here than anywhere else in Sana'a. Um, there's oh. no harassment. There's mm. no uh, disrespect. They're treated as sisters in the revolution. And, mm. uh, and um, so I think the fact that they're physically segregated, uh, I mean, it's, it's typical. It's not something that they see as really a problem. Oh, I see. I see. Um, there has been 
definitely a gender element to this revolution in Yemen. And I've, I've heard some testimonies from, from women who were involved in the protests saying that this is very much a social revolution as well as a political one, and that there have been, you know, anecdotes like women at the protest site who take off their, their face veils. Mm. Um, and some women have been seen, even filmed, uh, dancing with tribesmen. Um, and uh, so there, there, there's an extent to which gender barriers are being broken down, um, and there's sort of a, a very, there's camaraderie that, that crosses that barrier, uh, yeah. which is interesting to see. Uh, do, do you, um, and so we, we're talking with William Picard from Yemen Peace Project. So how, how do you um, maintain a peace project when, when war is going on, essentially? <laughs> well, um, I mean... I mean, is that difficult? If, if you want to call it war, it's definitely a one-sided war. Yeah. Uh, we saw in the earlier days in Sana'a um, some sort of light street battles between the two sides, rocks being thrown by both sides. And I, you know, that was, that was tough to see because a lot of people were still talking about this peaceful revolution of ours, but then they were throwing stones in the streets. Mm. At this point, though, I would say that the claim uh, among, on, on the, the side of the pro-democracy protesters that this is a peaceful revolution, is, that's a very valid claim. They are occupying space, they're making their demands known, but they're not engaging in any sort of violence. Um, and that's, you know, this is a, a big deal, uh, especially because um, when you hear about Yemen in the press, you hear the word tribal a lot, and most journalists and political analysts don't actually know what that means. Yeah. Um, what, what does that mean? What, what it means is that <laughs> in Ye Yemeni society, parts of Yemeni society, in, in certain regions of the country, um, are organized along tribal lines. And like ethnic groups. Sort of. Thing. A tribe, in, in some parts of the world, a tribe is sort of uh, defined by lineage, mm. by who your blood relatives are, that sort of thing. In Yemen, there's an element of that, but in Yemen, tribes are geographical entities. They're like statelets. They have boundaries. Okay. If you live inside one, then that's your tribe. If you don't, huh. you're, you can change tribes by moving. Oh, I see. You know? So oh, it's, okay. uh, it's, it's, not, it's not really an ethnic thing, but, um, but the truth is that tribes have a, a very martial heritage. It's part of their sort of ethos is that they are armed, that they mm -hmm. defend their honor and yeah. their independence by mm. force of arms if they need to. And a lot of the time, this is uh, what a lot of scholars call symbolic violence, but that doesn't mean it's not physical. Um, so a lot of people were curious when the major tribal confederations of North Yemen said that they were siding with the protesters, that they, wanted, mm -hmm. that they were against the government in this. People thought that was sort of a wild card. They didn't know if that meant that the tribes were going to start um, acts of violence within their own territories, if they were going to bring their weapons into the capital. Um, and they haven't, to any dis degree at all. Um, mm. In Sana'a, the day after this massacre on the 18th of March, uh, the, major, the biggest tribal confederations of the North sent uh, representatives, sent hundreds of their, of their youth into Sana'a, to the protest site, to make a public statement to the government that we are with the youth, we're oh. with the revolution, oh. and, and a lot of people read that as a warning. Um, but the tribesmen who have come, and they've come now by the thousands to the protest mm. site in Sana'a and in Taiz, 
have come without weapons. They've come peacefully there. You'll see them, you know, fraternizing with the students. Uh, and it's a very, there's a lot of, yeah. a lot of people talk about a feeling of social equality, similar uh-huh. to what I said about the women who are there. Um, a lot of the, the students and more politically minded activists have done stuff like set up tents. They're teaching lectures, teaching workshops on, uh, you know, political activism, on mobilization, uh-huh. on theory, stuff uh-huh. like this, and the tribesmen are responding to that. So it's, this is not at all an armed revolution, at least in, in Sana'a and, and Taiz, and even uh, groups that have been armed in the past, uh, the Houthi rebels in the far north, mm. have joined this revolution largely on a peaceful basis. Wow. Uh, they're not taking up arms against the government. Uh, today, though, we saw some very strange things in the south, which we can get to later, uh, that are not exactly peaceful. But, but essentially, this revolution is, at this point, a peaceful one. The government is the one um, engaging in violence, and it's not being reciprocated. So that uh, massacre, I guess, of the 52 uh, people mm-hmm. was actually a turning point, huh? It's, uh, some of the government uh, uh, people uh, quit the government. Uh, yeah. And, um, That's right. We'd seen a lot of um, resignations and defections mm-hmm. before that, but it was sort of a trickle. And mm-hmm. the massacre of the 18th unleashed just a, a flood of resignations. Um, there were ministers in the government who resigned, uh, more MPs and members of the ruling party, and then, most importantly, a number of generals in the armed forces. Mm. Um, the leading one of them... Um, Ali Mohsen al-Ahmar, who's a commander of one of the five regions of... It's broke, the country's broken into military regions for command purposes. And he's... Everyone sort of recognizes him and has for a decade now as the second most powerful man in the country. Mm, mm, uh, he, he commands his region, but he also commands the loyalty of much more of the armed forces. And so when he said that he was backing the revolution, mm. um, most people were willing to accept the the conclusion at that point that that things uh that president ali abdullah saleh's reign was over it's just a a matter of time and a matter of how it's going to end but that w- a lot of people read that as the decisive turning point and he took a lot of the rest of the military with him so now you have he did that right after the right massacre. after in yeah. and in explicit response to the massacre mm. he said that this was an unjustified action the violence was was uh, was wrong, and that it couldn't be tolerated or justified. Hmm. Um, and uh, he's also said because I mean this is a very powerful man, a soldier, a general, not a nice guy, not the guy <laughs> who I would like to see running Yemen, not the guy who most Yemenis would like to see running Yemen. He's responsible for himself for massacres hmm. in the north against civilians in ah. Sada and. Amran during the the war the wars against the Houthi rebels, before that in the 90s, responsible for massacres in the south um, during the civil war of 1994. So nobody wants to see him take over, but he's said very publicly and very explicitly uh, the kind of things that he knows the revolutionaries want to hear. He said that military rule in the Arab world is obsolete, mm. that he has no intention of taking power, and that if he has to resign himself. For the good of Yemen, he'll do it, but the president has to go first. Hmm. Um, so, the president yeah. offered to to quit, but not right away. Yeah, that's right. And he's said a bunch of things in the last, just in the last few days. Um, last week, after General Ali Mohsen 
resigned and backed the revolution, and a lot of other people did too. Um, the rumor was that those that he was in negotiations with the president, and that the president's resignation was imminent. Uh, obviously, it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. We were waiting for it all weekend long. It didn't <laughs> happen. Um, the president has made three, uh, actually four, public statements since then. And in each one, he's gotten farther and farther away from res- from resigning, at least huh. rhetorically. Uh, and just yesterday's speech said that I'm not offering any more concessions. Res- uh, concessions are done. I'm not leaving until 2013, which was the original date that he was going to go anyway. Oh, that's so good. he's yeah. back to square yeah. one. And I yeah. think that that's probably not to be taken at face value, but that's what he says at this point. Um, so why why would people don't believe him when he says he want, he's going to leave if something happens? Yeah, I mean people haven't the revolutionaries haven't been haven't accepted any of his so-called concessions in the past because they don't believe any of them. Mm. I mean this guy has offered or, or promised not to run for president several times in the past, oh. um, and we can see where that got us. He was supposed to be a transitional military ruler back in 1978, and yet here he is. So. Um, his word doesn't count for much among the revolutionaries or the opposition groups. So whether he's saying he's going to resign at the end of the year or whether he says he's never going to resign, it's, it amounts to the same thing in most people's minds. Uh, it's still, we can't tell what he's really thinking or what he's really planning. I think the general wisdom now uh, among Yemen watchers and among Yemenis in the revolution is that um, he knows the writings on the wall. Mm-hmm. and everyone else does too, he wants to make sure that he can leave on his own terms. Um, he wants guarantees for his family, uh, because right now it is his family is all he's got. He's lost a big part of his party. He's lost the military. He's lost the tribes. What he has is um, two of his sons and a few of his nephews who command military or police units, um, including very importantly, the Republican Guard and the counterterrorism units that mm. the United States uh, uh, trains and funds. Um, that's all he has left, to be honest. So if he wanted to start a civil war at this point, he could do it. He would lose it, but he could do it. Um, does he have a lot of assets? Uh, yeah, like, com- he does. Compar- comparable to the other dictators uh, other places? Well, I think probably uh, it's, it's on scale. I mean, Yemen is extremely poor... Yemen is much poorer than Egypt, so I, I would bet that uh, President Saleh doesn't have the money that Mubarak has, but he's got a lot more money than any other Yemeni. Um, but Obama just uh, closed off the assets of uh, the Libyan dictator, and mm-hmm. um, was there any move to do that with Yemen? No. no. Of course, they're not doing that. No, yeah. definitely that's not. that's an ally, right? Yeah, um, and the U.S. position on Yemen is, is a very slippery thing at the moment. Um, I did. I interviewed a State Department officer mm. uh, two weeks ago to sort of get the lowdown on on where the 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 Obama administration and the State Department are at when it comes to Yemen right now. And at that point, we'd seen two very violent attacks on the protesters in Sanaa. Nothing on the scale of what happened on the 18th, but people killed, people mm. shot by security forces in uniform. Um, and so I asked him. Uh, you know what what the position was, and he the, the essentially the position of the State Department at that point was we don't know enough to have an opinion, but 
you know, America believes that people have the right to free speech, but that in Yemen the answer is dialogue. And they stuck with this talking point for a long time, that we needed to see dialogue between all parties. But once the president's forces start firing on civilians, those civilians aren't interested in dialogue. <laughs> and while the U.S. ambassador in Yemen in the last couple of years has been very good at playing middleman between the president of Yemen and the opposition bloc, the opposition bloc no longer speaks for the revolution. It, it actually mm. never has. Um, it's Bypassed. Yeah, it's been bypassed, exactly. It's very cleverly and shrewdly come in behind the, the revolutionary youth, uh, and it knows that in the future it's going to get a significant piece of the pie. Mm. But right now it can't speak for Yemen, mm. and that's exactly what the U.S. wanted it to do. And so uh, State Department and President Obama kept talking about dialogue. And this essentially, you know, said while the president was saying that the, the protesters were legitimate, what he's really saying is they're not legitimate because they're not engaging in dialogue. And that's what we wanted to see. Who, who was this guy you spoke to? This, uh, well, he, I, he spoke to me, uh, as they say, on background. Oh, okay. Um, but he was a, a press officer. Um, and... Um, do you think they have a change? Have they changed their tune now? They've changed their tune a couple of times, mm. and at first it started. It looked like the U.S. was getting the message. They realized that that President Saleh had no legs to stand on, and that they were preparing for a transition. And they even used the word transition a couple of times in some statements. Um, and it was known that U.S. officials were mediating between the president and all of these other revolutionary parties to mm. secure the president's resignation. But once those talks stalled after a couple of days, and I would say that this was this past Sunday, just yesterday morning, um, we started hearing different things from U.S. officials. Um, and President Saleh in Yemen started talking publicly about the threat of al-Qaeda a lot more. Every time he opened his mouth, he was saying something about al-Qaeda and how if he left, chaos. And we started, and then we heard uh, on Sunday. Uh, There's so, some skirmish, right? Yeah, yeah but before that, uh, Secretary of Defense Gates um, said publicly that he was very concerned about what would happen if Saleh left, and that it would bring problems. So it looked like the U.S. again was swinging back to its old position of basically backing President Saleh unconditionally, um, which is a horrible idea. But, uh, but. They haven't asked for my opinion or listened to it when <laughs> I gave it. So, um, but yeah. So where the U.S. right is right now, it's hard to say. I think that you know everyone in the case of Libya has been looking for the quote unquote Obama doctrine, and I think really the Obama doctrine is to keep everything to yourself and just you know this. this the administration is less transparent than the Bush administration in terms of its foreign policy thinking. Um, we just have to wait for it to make a decision at the last minute, and then it might justify it. But we're not going to know what the Obama doctrine says about Yemen until it's already a done deal um, at this point. But yeah, as you said, there have been some interesting clashes in the last couple of days. And this, is, this takes us to the south of Yemen. Um, the so-called Al-Qaeda in the, uh, in the Arab Arabian Peninsula. Arabian Peninsula yeah. Uh, yeah, that was... That's what the Yemeni press office said yesterday, that uh, 
Al-Qaeda gunmen had taken over government buildings and an ammunition factory in the province of Abyan in the far south um, and had killed some soldiers. What, it, what uh, reports from people on the ground are saying uh, is that these weren't Al-Qaeda people at all. Mm. Um, that, first of all, local residents calling themselves revolutionaries had occupied government buildings without violence, mm-hmm. um, as has been done in other provinces in the north. And then, uh, and this is an accusation that I can't confirm, but, I'll, but it's what's being talked about, um, a number of citizens from a neighboring government had been paid by government officials to essentially take over this uh, ammunition factory, this area, oh. and say that they were al-Qaeda. Um, and that this was sort of, they were told that this was a kind of play acting, you know, that th- this was just something they'd, where they were being asked and paid to do, and it wasn't going to be a big deal. Um, Did they get killed? Yeah. <laughs> Security forces started firing on the people who allegedly they had paid to play the role of al-Qaeda. Um, so then, um, that's all very murky, as I said, yeah. but it's not outside of the realm of possibility that, it, that it's true. What we do know is that citizens in Abyan, who have no connection to Al-Qaeda, at some point occupied the area around this ammunition factory Mm. in Abyan. One source told me earlier today that they were there to protect it because the government forces had left the area. Mm. They've abandoned the whole area leaving all their equipment, their materiel behind. So you saw footage today on Al Jazeera of civilians riding around on armored personnel carriers that had just been left lying in the street. So some people said that the citizens had gone to protect the ammunition uh, factory from being taken over by Al-Qaeda or others. Um, Some other reports said that they were looting it. It's hard to say what the truth is, but at some point there was a major explosion. And at up till now, uh, 120 people are said to have died because of this explosion at the ammunition factory. Wow. So this would be, and it's, it's such a strange incident because we still don't know exactly what happened, who these people were, or why they were there, but it has doubled the death toll of the revolution in a mm-hmm. day. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, doubled the, the, what we saw in the March 18th massacre in Sana'a in, in a day. So... Uh, it's, it's, it's tragic and it's really, it's dominated the news from Yemen today and we still don't have any clear answer as to what happened or why. Um, but I know, I can tell you that most people in Abyan and in Aden in the south don't believe that this had anything to do with Al-Qaeda. So the government's still arguing that these were Al-Qaeda people that... Yeah. yeah, Um, or that somehow Al-Qaeda was involved in the explosion. Mm. And that's, not many people seem to believe that. Um, uh, a lot of people in the South are concerned about Al-Qaeda because it does exist. It's there. Um, but it's more of a threat to them than to anyone else. I mean, most of the people who have died from actions uh, carried out by AQAP are Yemenis. Mm. You know, I think one American has been killed so far, and, and she was there by accident. She wasn't even mm. a target. So... Um, it's, it's Yemenis who pay the price for Al-Qaeda and for the government's very sordid dealings with Al-Qaeda and war against Al-Qaeda. One week they may be, you know, uh, turning their back while Al-Qaeda does something or other. 
and the next week they may be bombing uh, a suspected al-Qaeda hideout. So, and it's always the local citizens who, who pay the price for this policy. Do the, do the, who does the bombing? Is the U.S. does the bombing? Are they... We've, we've, we've definitely seen some of both. We've seen in the last couple of years some major Yemeni military actions against al-Qaeda. Um, the Yemeni army hasn't actually won any of those. Do uh, they fly, be does the U.S. fly pilot, pilotless drones over... They have the drones there. Yeah. Um, I, I can't... I don't know of any confirmed drone strikes, drone mm. missile strikes since 2000, uh, 2003, I think. Oh. Um, but there are drones overhead, at least for surveillance. Um, there are American special forces and CIA covert teams on the ground and working with the Yemeni counterterrorism teams. And it's very important to note, and I raised this with the State Department when I talked to them, that citizens in Yemen, protesters, have said that these counter-terror squads have been present uh, in... in mm. you know, they've been part of the government repression of mm. protests. Um, so there's reason to believe, though obviously the State Department just keeps saying that we can't confirm this, we don't know, um, but that U.S. assets, essentially, U.S. funding, training, mm. is going directly towards the repression of this revolution. Is there any... Um have you found any documents <laughs> in WikiLeaks or something about that, about the the secret funding and what? Well, I mean, the funding itself is very is very public. It's not uh, a secret at all. Um, there there were, if I'm not mistaken, some cables in the WikiLeaks uh, dumps that talked about the fact that Yemen was using a lot of this U.S. aid against enemies other than Al Qaeda, mm. against the president's domestic enemies, essentially. Mm. But that's something that the U.S. government won't acknowledge. Um, like everything else that came out of WikiLeaks, they pretend like it doesn't exist. Mm. Um, so, uh, but there's nothing secret about the fact that, that the U.S. is funding and training these units. That's stated policy. Um, would the Congress go along with this now, or would they put a stop to it, or were they going to fund it more? Like, we'll see. Yeah. Uh, it's hard to say. I mean, right now... Uh, some some people there have been some mutterings in Congress about uh, it being time for President Saleh to go, but mm -hmm. the but the con I don't know. To me, it seems like Congress isn't willing. Uh, there are, I haven't heard any congressmen who are willing to really get out in front of this in Yemen as they have been in other cases. Is there anybody who's been concerned about events in Yemen specifically, uh, or speaks out on it more, or, or is it all just the? Not that I can think of, not that I can think of really. People. Yeah, it's really, I mean, the U.S. in general, from the White House, Department of Defense, State, and Congress, all just really look at Yemen through this one lens, through mm -hmm. the counter-terror lens. Um, and, you know, that's to be expected. What doesn't make any sense at all is that they still believe that President Saleh is good for counter-terrorism. He's clearly not. Um... His ties with Islamic militants are well-known and go back to the beginning of his presidency. And he's, been, he's clearly making Yemen less stable than, than more. Otherwise, we wouldn't be having a revolution right now. Mm. So I, it, it makes no sense to me why the U.S. would say, you know, that we don't want to see what happens after Saleh. What do they think is going to happen if he sticks around? If the Yemeni people can't get rid of him, what do they think Yemen's going to look like in that case? It's, it's not... Uh, tenable at all. What are the people fighting for? What are the protesters fighting for? Uh, 
Well, um, you, you mentioned the word democracy, but you know th- that's a loaded term. <laughs> and, uh, uh, that's true. Americans think of it as in one way, but uh, people other w- other places may think of it as another in another way. What what do you think people are really talking about? Well, uh, that's a, that's a very good question because uh, there are so many different groups involved in this movement at this point. Um, what they all agree on is that the president and his inner circle and his family need to go. What they're not all going to agree on is what happens after that. Mm. Um, the revolutionary youth, which are at this point much more organized than that might sound, um, mm. have drafted uh, a few documents laying out what they think should happen next. Um, and it basically goes something like this. It uh, involves a transitional uh, presidential council of five or six people drawn from the different opposition parties uh, and the youth movement with one representative from the military because you can't rule a country without the the complicity of the military, especially not Yemen. Um, and then that council would essentially oversee within a six-month time frame uh, fresh parliamentary elections mm. and the rewriting of the Constitution so that instead of a presidential republic, which is what you have now, you would have a uh, parliamentary democracy. So that the parliament, after parliamentary elections, the parliament would form a government. You'd have the executive powers vested in the prime minister and, ex- and uh, cabinet instead of uh, vested in the president. Um, so that's what they're advocating, and it looks like most of the other uh, groups involved in the revolution are behind some form of that or another, mm-hmm. at least, uh, at least uh, in their words. Um, it's going to be really interesting to see what happens because, I think we talked about this a little, a little bit last time, but the main uh, opposition party, the opposition bloc actually, the joint meeting parties or JMP, is a coalition of parties, and it's a coalition. The, the biggest party, Islah, is mainly regarded as an Islamist party, but it's mm. also a tribal party. So that in itself is a weird conglomerate. And then you've got the Socialist Party. Uh, you've got a Nasserite Party, uh, the Ba'ath Party of Yemen, all of these different parties in this one block that wouldn't exist were it not for President Saleh. Mm. Uh, without a, lo- a leader like him with a, a ruling party like him, you wouldn't have an opposition block like this. And then the ruling party itself, in truth, is a block. It's, it's, a, it's a conglomeration of different parties that have very different interests. So you're not going to see the same alignments after Saleh's gone. You're going to see each of these different parties angling for their own positions. Um, and the strongmen of the country, like General Ali Mohsen, like the leader of the uh, Hashid Tribal Confederation, the leader of the Islah Party, all of these strongmen angling themselves, um, knowing, though, that there has been this new force, this, this revolutionary force unleashed in Yemen that won't put up, at least not immediately, with ha- seeing the country handed over to another uh, strongman ruler like that. But do you think that, uh, the CIA must be very busy now trying to you know, touch base with all these people and trying to influence them. Yeah, I wonder about that. Um, the U.S. intelligence community has done a terrible job in the last couple of decades at, at keeping its head wrapped around Yemen. Mm. Um, it usually knows some of the picture, but not all of it. 
it knows who the big players are, but doesn't have a lot of boots on the ground, a lot of uh, assets in Yemeni society. Um, you know, earlier this year there was an incident where somebody threw a hand grenade under uh, a CIA jeep while the four officers were waiting outside a pizza shop. Mm. So, I mean, this is not some masterful covert force that we have over there. Uh, they, they, the few CIA operatives that are in Yemen, probably everyone knows who they are, um, and they don't have their ear to the ground that firmly. That being said, the U.S. definitely has people who are in touch with the top generals. Um, mm. There are political... So some of them were trained, or the, the people were trained in... In counterterrorism. Yeah, that's right. Um, though mainly, I mean, the people in charge of counterterrorism in Yemen are the president's family. Oh. So if the demands of the revolutionaries are met, they're all gone. And that's really the concern that Secretary Gates is talking about these days. He's going to have to start from scratch, um, he thinks. If the whole Saleh family is expelled from Yemen or expelled from power anyway, then any counterterrorism cooperation has to start from scratch. Yemenis know that it has to start from scratch anyway because it's being done wrong, mm -hmm. but uh, the American establishment is less willing to acknowledge that. Um, so the post-Saleh picture, it's true, is, is impossible to, to know ahead of time, um, but I think that it's not as bleak as people like Secretary Gates or others in the U.S. would, would paint it. How many uh, people in the State Department or the CIA, for that matter, know the language? Very few. Very few people. Uh, have they been recruiting, do you know, from job ads or whatever? They have. I mean, in the last decade, we've seen a lot more. We've seen an effort to get Arabic speakers into the government. Um, There's a uh, college program, isn't there? I mean, Congress uh, is supporting some kind of national security funding for uh, for different languages yeah they do yeah. and they and they pay uh you know they pay well for arabic speakers and for arab americans to go into um the the government to the state department and the cia and that sort of thing fbi but do, yeah. yeah the fbi but uh it doesn't seem to be making that much of an impact especially in places like yemen mm -hmm. um the Yem the embassy in yemen is notorious for being a, a walled compound and the fortified, embassy sure. staff yeah. leads a very cloistered existence. I think this uh, every, I, I went, once I went into the Vietnam embassy mm. and I was a Fulbright scholar and, <laughs> and I wanted to go to another floor and the marine guard yelled at me. <laughs> I said, why are you going up there? I said, I want to get tax forms or something. And, you know, he said, why are you going to the third floor or whatever? And screamed at me. And after they already took my ID, yeah. they knew who I was. But, yeah, uh, it's... Um, yeah. It's not, uh, this is the, the biggest criticism that uh, policy-minded people have of the, the U.S. State Department when it comes to Yemen is that the people who are in the, in the embassy there, they don't know, they don't see Yemen. They see the embassy. Um, right. And so, you know, I sort of had to laugh when I was talking to this State Department officer uh, and asking him, what does, you know, the State Department, what's, what's the position on the, these acts of violence against protesters? And he says, well you know, essentially we're investigating what happened. We don't know exactly what happened, but we're trying to find out. And I just, I almost laughed at that because... That's surprising. Really, yeah. what capacity do you have to investigate from within the walls of your embassy? It's not, there is, there is no capacity. And everyone knows what's happened. 
you know, men with uniforms were firing at protesters. Everyone at the protest saw that. And it's clear that State Department officers aren't going to the protest site and conducting interviews and gathering mm -hmm. forensic evidence. That's just not happening. So um, they talk about trying to figure out what things uh, are going to look like in the transitional period. But in reality, they have so little experience with anyone but the very top uh, of the, the political and military elite in Yemen that they just don't understand the sort of new forces and new social alignments that have been shaped in the last couple of months. Uh, which, uh, we're talking with William Picard of the uh, Yemen Peace Project. Uh, which government or which foreign government has the best relationship, you think, with, with the people, say, or with the protesters, you think? Well, um, I would have to say, at this point, none. Mm. Um, Saudi Arabia wields a huge amount of influence in Yemen, but it, it wields it through the president and through a few uh, tribal powers and, and military powers. Um, so they're not going to invade and prop up the regime? Well, after, after what happened in Bahrain, I'm not so sure, but I think that the Saudis know Yemen well enough to know that that would be a terrible idea. Mm. Um, you can push a peaceful revolution only so far, uh, especially in a country that does have a tradition of... of self-defense as an ethos, mm. independence. Um, the Yemenis, uh, you know, they've seen civil war before. They've fought civil wars before. Um, and in the 60s, in fact, the Saudis backed the deposed king of Yemen, while the Egyptians backed the revolution. Mm. Both Saudi Arabia and Egypt ended up withdrawing long before the war was over because they just couldn't sustain this, mm. the sort of casualties and the loss of money that they were taking. Um, so the Yemenis, uh, nobody in the region wants to get involved. The Saudis can't fight a war in Yemen uh, and defend them, the, their own royal family from revolution. Uh -huh. uh, and I think that's really gonna, what's going to keep them out of too much interference in Yemen. Uh, the but, Bahrain thing, was that a short-lived uh, incursion? Or but it looks like the Saudi and uh, other, uh, the Emirati and Qatari forces are still there, mm. uh, supporting the, the Bahraini security forces. Um, and in Yemen, actually, this has been confirmed that Saudi Arabia sent a shipment of, some people say 30, some people say 50, anti-riot trucks mm. to Yemen. They are backing the regime still with money, but um, they're not necessarily backing President Saleh anymore. Mm. Um, the Saudi government has close ties to General Ali Mohsen as well. He's very close with Saudi Arabia. Yeah. And so there's no, there's been an indication, there was indications last weekend that uh, the president sent his foreign minister to Riyadh to talk to the Saudi government and ask if they would mediate on his behalf. Uh, and they essentially said no. Uh, what the Saudi government said publicly was, we want to see stability in Yemen. Um, we don't care about whether or not the president survives. Oh. Uh, so if they can get what they want, which... I mean, they say they want stability. In honesty, they want stability in Yemen, but not too much stability. They want influence yeah. in, in Yemen. Yeah. So if they can get what they want through General Ali Mohsen, through even a, a democratic government, they don't care what it looks like. Um, and they've given up on propping up President Saleh. Uh, the U.S. seems to be sort of lagging behind the curve in that respect, too. But I think, honestly, deep down and in private, the U.S. is no longer supporting President Saleh either. Um, I think what everyone's waiting for, and I think we saw this with Mubarak in Egypt too, yeah. uh, 
there were a few days where everyone was saying, oh, today's the day. He's right, gone. Yeah. And, and he defied them all. Yeah. I think President Saleh is waiting for everyone to stop saying today's the day, everyone to acknowledge that, yes, this is still a shrewd man and a strong man, and then he'll go because he yeah. knows his time is done. Yeah. But he yeah. wants to look like, you know, he's said in interviews, he wants to leave with dignity. Do they want, the protesters want him to stand trial or anything like Most that? of them do. Most of them, even, mm. even the uh, General Ali Mohsen, the, the mainstream opposition parties have called for that. Mm. Um, that's one thing that Saleh is very keen to avoid. He wants to avoid prosecution for him and his uh, family. Um, he wants to keep the assets that he has, obviously. And um, he, he says he'd like to stay in Yemen. Um, you know, this whole thing with the International Criminal Court, mm-hmm. did they come into play at all yet? In well, they, it's possible that they could in the future. Um, just like with Libya, mm. that's what the revolutionaries would like to see, is some real justice, and that's the venue for it to happen. Mm. Um, but uh, but we'll have to see if that actually does happen, or if he just sort of is allowed to fade away. Um, because somebody uh, on some other broadcasts they were saying that there's no uh, no desert island they can send these dictators to anymore <laughs> if the uh, the international criminal criminal court uh, you know uh, people can find you and drag you and extradite you yeah uh, we've uh, definitely at some point seen some interesting developments with international uh, and universal jurisdiction um, but there are there are always deals to be made I think. Um, yeah, that's true. Yeah, and but uh, it's interesting. I think that that Iraq was a lesson for a lot of the the world, a lot of the Arab mm. world, especially that uh, you want justice, but you don't want an occupier's justice. You don't yeah, want yeah. what happened to Saddam Hussein, some show trial that ends in a brutal execution. That's just not justice for anybody. So uh, you hear this in Libya too. What the Yemenis want is the victor's justice. Yeah, oh, that was yeah. They want their. They want uh, you know true justice they want to see the assets that this man has taken um returned they want to see real remediation of the sort of corruption that Mm. has put yemen into the position that it's in right now um it's not an intrinsically poor country it's got trade routes it got it's got ports it's got natural Mm -hmm. gas it's you know it's not an intrinsic wasteland it's been looted and corrupted into the state that it's currently in, and they want to see that reversed. Uh, and that's what justice means for the Yemeni revolution. Um, it's not about just meeting out revenge on this brutal dictator, though a lot of people would be happy to see that as well. What kind of contacts do you still maintain with people there? I mean, you said you you, you talk to people there. Yeah, we've been... Uh, our pool of contacts in on the ground in Yemen has been growing uh, uh-huh. since the beginning of the revolution, Thank, thanks to uh, Twitter and Facebook, uh, which, uh, you know, we've said that um, in Yemen you certainly can't credit the Internet with this revolution because something like 1.5% of Yemenis <laughs> has Internet access, yeah. but it is a real tool uh, for Yemenis to get their voice out, and now that the revolutionary movement is really somewhat organized, especially the youth movement, is organized and centralized. Um, so I, we've been able to make contact with several activists who are, while not a part of the committees of the revolution, the organizers, mm. they're in touch with them, and with journalists, mm. local journalists, mm. and bloggers who are very much um, in touch with people in different parts of the country. And this... Uh, 
it helps us sort of get different angles on what's reported in the news, especially as, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago we saw four American and British journalists deported. Uh, Al Jazeera's staff has been deported from Yemen. Um, mm. So as the mainstream media is closed out, um, though there are still a couple of really great journalists, uh, freelancers from the West, and a lot of really great and brave Yemeni journalists working in the protest zones, um, the citizen journalism and the um, activist journalism is filling in that void. Where, where do they post their uh, materials in English, then? Um, some of them keep English blogs. Uh, mm. Some people, some people translate uh, the Arabic material that's written. And a lot of the a lot of the the Twitter traffic from Yemen is in English. Um, do you show it? Do you link to some of this in, on your yeah, website? Yeah, uh, on our website we actually have a, a real time Twitter widget, and that shows the things that I tweet and that I retweet mm. from others and. Uh, um uh on our we've been using our facebook page to basically every few hours or every day at the at the at the least we sort of will write up a digest of what we've oh, heard okay. and what we've been able to confirm um whether or not it's being reported on in the media or not so we've made some very valuable valuable contacts and that's what's i mean right now we're we're even able to um, contribute in a literal sense uh, because we have contacts who can get who can um, who can get supplies to sort of the medical committees of the revolution, for instance. Um, and yeah, on uh, your website, you have this donation site, and yeah. you're talking about getting medical supplies. How? What kind of medicine is needed? Or what kind of supplies are needed? Yeah. Well, this is. Uh, really a big deal because as we were talking about this massacre on the 18th mm. of March and it's only one of several things in Aden we've seen consistent horrific violence from the beginning committed by the regime snipers indiscriminate shooting uh, in Sana'a there have been doctors have reported that nerve gas is being used mm. against protesters and in these protest sites in Yemen in, in Sana'a in Taiz in Aden in Hodeida and other cities in Yemen um, one thing that the government has done, the regime has been very deliberately uh, depriving people of medical care. So they've been, for instance, in, in Aden, when people had been shot and were lying in the, at the, in the street, they would shoot um, any rescuers who were trying to, to come out and, and provide aid. They were kidnapping wounded people yeah. from hospitals. So the only source of real medical assistance for people who are wounded in the protests are these field hospitals uh, within the protest sites themselves. And those are staffed by volunteer doctors and nurses, and they're funded by the revolutionary youth themselves. Is the hospitals all state-run otherwise? Uh, no, there's some private and some oh. public. Um, but it looks like uh, some have turned people away because they're going, they know they're going to be kidnapped or arrested. Um, and some, in some cases, the, gov the regime has forced hospitals to turn patients away. Oh, um, has prevented ambulances from coming in, stuff like that. Mm. So really, the, pro the protesters can only count on the on-site staff, the on-site medical assistance. And that's really hard when you're talking about, uh, you know, a couple hundred thousand people who are all unemployed or underemployed, and, um, you know, 50% of Yemenis live on less than $2 a day. Mm. So to what extent can they really pay for generators to run the lights to operating theaters you know morphine mm. iv supplies this sort of stuff uh the sort of things you need to treat gunshot wounds uh gas inhalation exhaustion dehydration just stuff like that uh it's not cheap 
You said 50, uh, so in that one massacre, 52 people were killed. Hundreds were injured and, as well. And hundreds, yeah. Yeah, hundreds. hundreds. Uh, had been shot or exposed to gas, beaten, uh, water cannons that were used. So um, it, it really is, I mean, the medical situation is, it's not good inside these protest zones. And, uh, and yet, um, you've seen a lot of just popular support, you know, tribesmen turning into EMTs mm-hmm. and just yeah. doing what they can uh, to keep each other safe and alive. Um, Who, who's doing the torturing? Is it the military or the police or both? Or We've, we've seen uh, military units, also central security, um, which is uh, a, a separate organ from the military. And then there... Um, there's also what's been referred to in the, in in the press as thugs, and you saw this in Yemen and in, in Egypt and Bahrain and elsewhere. Um, and in Yemen, it's very well documented at this point that most of the so-called pro-regime thugs, uh, which the regime claims are civilians, who just happen to support the president, hmm. um, that these are actually, to a large extent, soldiers and police and other state employees who have been ordered to dress in civilian clothes oh. and either rally on behalf of the regime or engage in violence on behalf of the regime. Um, so any claims that, uh, that, this is sort of, that we've seen uh, pro-regime rallies or pro-regime violence carried out by civilians is complete nonsense. It's all orchestrated uh, and funded by the regime. Witnesses have even said that they've seen units from the Republican Guard hmm which is commanded by a relative of general of president Saleh, um, changing into civilian clothes, taking off their uniforms at protest sites so that they can then engage in violence, uh, out, out of uniform. Wow. So what, what do you think is going to happen <laughs> in terms of, uh, y- y- the president seems like he's about to go. Yeah. Right, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the question is when, and the question is, um, whether or not he chooses to inflict um, damage on his way out, uh, mm-hmm. you know he can he can go easily, or he can try to spark a, an ill-advised civil war on his way out. Um, but it's clear the U.S. funding for this anti-terrorism effort will continue, right? Yeah, in one way or another. Um, yeah. It look, you know, a new government in Yemen might not might really want to change the terms of this, and we'll mm. have to see whether the U.S. is willing to be flexible. Or if the U.S. wants to sort of carry out the sort of operations that it does in Pakistan with very limited support from the new Yemeni government, is it going to just send in drones and, and covert teams without approval? Um, mm-hmm. Or is it going to try to work with the new government on a real productive counterterror strategy that involves uh, humanitarian aid and, and stuff like that to solve the systemic problems in Yemen that, that contribute to terrorism? Right now, it's heavily loaded towards military aid, not humanitarian aid, right? That's right. And the, the humanitarian aid that has been going in has been going in through the regime. Oh. Um, so, obviously, most of it ends up in people's pockets mm. and not the, pe- not the people's pockets. Uh, <laughs> so, um, yeah. in, in, with a new government in place, that could change. Um, or you could see the, the U.S. reluctant to send any money in that it can't account for directly. Um, because for whatever reason, the U.S. Uh, tends to trust um, strong men, even when those men uh, seem to be just doing everything in their interest to tear their countries apart. 
At least they're, they're our people, I guess. They That's right, yeah. yeah. So thank you very much. Uh, we actually uh, end of our time here. So thank you, William good to be Picard, uh, from the Yemen Peace Project. This is Dan Zhang signing off for Subversity here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. The opinions expressed on the show were not necessarily those of the regents of the University of California, nor the management of KUCI.